You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. You guys, this is such a privilege. This is uh, a joy. I was telling the group on Monday as we were worshiping and praying before uh, the first session Monday, I was, was worshiping in the spirit and saw something like um, a cloud almost come over the campus. And it was gloomy and it was dark outside, but in this vision, it was um, a move of the Holy Spirit. And there was light that broke forth. And the Lord just began to speak, I'm emancipating my children. There's freedom that will fall today that fell Monday that um, we're continuing to experience and see over campus. And it's what God desires to do. It's what the spirit of the living God is in the business of doing, not that we would be the Christians who walk through life uh, learning how to cope, but that Christ truly came to set the captives free. And those who are free are free indeed. And with that freedom comes healing, it comes wholeness, comes boldness and restoration and great joy. Even around some of the hardest topics, some of the most broken things, some of what the world would deem the most shameful things or what we may have walked through our lives being paralyzed or shamed into silence around, these are the very topics that God is in the business of bringing freedom to and the very topics, the chains that bound us that we allow by his blood, by his power, he unwinds and wraps around the enemy who thought he had an upper hand in stealing, killing, or destroying the destiny over your life and the plans and purposes over your life. God used those very things to uh, bind the ones that came to afflict and to give us power and freedom, and self-control. And so I feel the joy of the Lord. I'm also pregnant and hormonal, so I'll probably cry. I'll spontaneously laugh. It's a lot. Uh, but I am excited. I'm excited today and through this week to jump into the topics of sex and sexuality because it was a huge uh, part of my story, a paralyzing part of my story. The, the word of the Lord says that sin is defeated, that the enemy is defeated by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimonies. And so I want to share a bit of my story this morning, but also dig into the text where we see God really collide in a powerful way with someone imprisoned by many of these same things, maybe some of us in silence or hidden behind these things, and he reveals who he truly is in light of sexual sin, sexual brokenness, trauma, um, whatever it may be that has touched our lives. I do not envy, I'm not that much older than you guys, but I, I genuinely don't envy even just uh, eight years difference, really, the culture that you all have had to navigate and be brought up in. It is really an inundation. We were talking about this last night. This generation is almost set apart in nature of how deeply spiritual attack is over and on you all. 
The enemy is fighting in the spiritual realm in ways that are almost unprecedented to um, disjoint us from our maker, to wound us, to confuse us to our identity and to his. And sexual brokenness is a big piece of this. Um, I myself navigated quite a bit of it. And what's interesting is I think growing up, I was raised up in a Christian home with wonderful God-fearing parents. Um, But I think my parents assumed when it came to sex and sexuality, really a, a key piece of all of our identities. I think they assumed maybe the church was having the harder conversations. The church assumed the families were having the harder, more taboo conversations. And ultimately, no one was really having the full conversation with me. And so my worldview was framed by a culture, by the world, by what I saw and experience through peers, through uh, circumstances in my own life, movies, magazines, TV, you name it. And when it came to understanding my identity, my sexuality, uh, how to navigate this, it really was led by a world that you're led by too that said, put your naivety on display, figure it out as you go, your body, your freedom. There's no real absolute subjective to opinion almost an invitation to kind of run this maze and trial and error, figure things out. And meanwhile, it's all very public and very impactful on our lives. But we are lorded by the spirit of the world that has taken sex and it has cheapened it. It's perverted it. It has twisted it. Sex has become entertainment for us. It has dehumanized it. We see sexually perverse things. We see pornography as body parts made for our pleasure rather than image-bearing creations of God. We are so detached and dehumanized because of what we have been inundated by that we are led by the spirit of the world that says, test drive the car before you buy it, figure it out as you go. And yet the same world is crying out, hashtag me too. I'm hurting, I'm confused, we're broken, we don't know the answer. It's sort of always changing because there's always a new angle. Things could be approached, a world that is crying out. And for just a moment, just a split sliver of a moment, That world looks to the church. Most of the time we get bullied out of the conversation because it's such a screaming match of great worldly debate. But in the woundedness, in the hurt, in the need for help and hope, for just a moment the lost will look to the church and they look to us, do you have an answer? Do you have hope? Do you have any guidance? Do you have testimony? Do you have whatever it may be that could help me? And they look to the church and we are silent. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. This is a result of the fact that we too are wounded, uncertain, uninformed. We don't know what the Word of God really has to say about it. We don't even understand the association of sex as it is prophetic to the very nature of the gospel of bridegroom to bride. We are confused. We are imprisoned by shame because we're supposed to have it all together, right, and walk it out and have the good-looking exterior, especially at the Christian university. And so really, 
Um, we, we carry ourselves as if this is a non-issue, and so why would we need to discuss it? Yet we're often addicted to pornography behind closed doors. It's the secret sin. It's the things that we keep hidden. And that chasm it forms with God leaves us stiff and robotic. We don't know freedom because we're trying to figure out how to navigate behavior modification and looking okay enough, even though our hearts are in turmoil. They look to the church and we have not many answers. Even though the truth of sex is that it's God's invention. Chocker. That he created it. He created you, male and female, the physical manifestation of his spiritual glory, image-bearing creations of God, unique and different and powerful representatives of the very glory of the creator of the heaven and the earth. In the garden, we knew perfect intimacy with God. We stood naked and unashamed before him, right? But then sin entered in, there was a chasm of separation. We hide in our shame, we hide behind our fig leaves, and the very work of Christ, the very purpose of the gospel, is reflected in the first mention, really, of sex and sexuality in the text, that this is why the man leaves his father's household, is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And together they are naked and unashamed. Well, this is why the son left his father's house to come receive his bride, the church, the body, the ecclesia, to be united with her in great intimacy, that the two would become one flesh and that together they would be naked and unashamed. This is the gospel. It's what Christ does for us, the intimacy we are to know with God. But that word even seems creepy and weird to talk about in connection to Christ because what we've known of intimacy is brokenness. And this was my story, massively. I was raised up in the church, sure, but again, the conversations weren't being cultivated. I remember at nine years old going down to my mom's bedroom to ask her. I had to do this project on snakes, like a trifold board. Uh, and it wasn't really like the time of greatly accessible Google. And so I had to go down to ask her what is still an unknown question to mankind of how snakes have sex. I had to do a reproduction portion. It doesn't make sense. I don't get the logistics. And so I went down to talk to her about it. And I remember the terms I was using, the phrases I was expressing, she was taken aback because what she didn't realize was already at nine years old, I had had an older neighbor take me down to like our neighborhood fort by the creek and share everything they knew about sex. I didn't ask, it was unsolicited advice, but I got the full download from Natalie on all she knew about sex and sexuality. What my mom also didn't realize was that uh, at nine, I had opened the truck door of my dad's truck and this playing card had fallen out of like the papers he kept wadded and stuffed behind the seat. And I bent down to pick it up and push it back in and I turned it over and it was a novelty poker card and there was a graphic pornographic image on the back. And I remember standing there, I don't know if you recall maybe the first time that you were exposed to something sexually explicit I didn't understand what I was seeing, but I knew this wasn't my father, and that certainly wasn't my mommy, and something about this image seared something on me. And it began as this shame and this guilt, and I just tried to pretend like I hadn't seen what I'd seen, even though I felt like I was going to vomit, and climbed up into the passenger seat of my daddy's car. 
And yet as time passed, that shame and that guilt kind of evolved into curiosity. And what was it that I'd seen and why it had made me feel some kind of way? And was there any more I could find? And I began to seek these things out. And from nine years old to 19 years old, dealt with a decade-long addiction to pornography in the quiet, unseen place. You see, porn is like sirens on the cliff. They seem appealing and alluring. It's like it almost calls out to us, but it calls us to our death, to our spiritual death to relational death, and this gripped me. In that same interaction with my mom, um, I remember her looking very panicked and saying, which I don't know if I would have handled it too differently. I have three children, and if they had said some of the stuff I was saying, I don't blame my mom, but she kind of nervously said, wait, 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 no, 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 honey. See, God desires that we be virgins when we're married. And I was a virgin when I married your father, and he was a virgin when he married me. And God desires that, and I am theatrical, if you can't tell, and I clearly remember standing up and interrupting her and saying, then mother, if you and dad were virgins when you married, I too will be a virgin. And I marched out of the room with this triumphant and vain virginity vow proclaimed. And while that's fine, it was incomplete because what I understood of sex, really the only thing I understood at that time was uh, virginity as my guiding force. And really what that is, is a works-based answer to the greater question of the Lord all through the text, the heart surrender question and the call to purity, a pure heart, pure thoughts, pure words, pure actions. The byproduct of purity will be the actions. But I just knew about virginity, and so I self-righteously claimed that and navigated forward that way. And what happens is that our question very quickly begins to shift to like, okay then, so how far is too far? And essentially what our heart is asking is, what can I get away with and just not go to hell? We begin to negotiate and rationalize with sin and push the envelope. And this is how I lived, pushing it envelope, <laughs> couldn't do less than I'd already done, finding worth and value in these things, again, discreet and pretty unseen. But I remember going off to college after my freshman year, my dad put a gun to his heart and pulled the trigger and suicide entered my story. And if you want something that will compel you deep into the depths of sexual sin, it will be trauma in your life. And the search, the hope, the desire for anything to fill that void, fill that hole, any quick fix that we could just disassociate for a moment from feeling the reality of life and maybe find a momentary pleasure. And I began to build a reputation really that preceded me. And I remember one morning waking up, these were my BC before Christ days, so cut me a little slack, but I was waking up hungover, replaying the night before, and suddenly it struck me, wait, who was that guy who had joined our group in the middle of the night, and, and, and where was he from, and how did we know him, and how did I end up fooling around with him in the kitchen, and my drunkenness, and what had they said about him, and was he married? Or was he separated or was he divorced? No, I'm pretty sure they said he was married. And am I an adulteress? The word of God says that if we even look upon another with lust, then we have committed adultery in our hearts. So maybe all of us hold that blood on our hands. But I now had carried out physical act of adultery to another's marriage. And I remember sitting there thinking, what has happened? 
who have I become and how did I get here? Because I'm still waving the self-righteous virginity banner, but I'm addicted to pornography. I've pushed the envelope as far as it'll possibly go. I now have adultery stamped over my story. So maybe I'm missing something in this equation. And the shame that overwhelmed me and the guilt that gripped me was just paralyzing. And the enemy's greatest tactic against you to keep you imprisoned is to shame you into silence of whatever you've walked through, of cultivating this conversation. But the beauty was that not too long after, I was suicidal myself, really understanding what my dad had did, seeing it as a viable option, very worn out, very sick of faking fine, wearing the mask. We could win Academy Awards, goodness, especially at Christian University of how um, well we are able to seem like we're holding ourselves together. So I was in a horrific car accident. And the cry of my heart really prior to that accident had been, God, if you're so real, do something, because I don't believe you are or that you're good, or that you're any of this stuff. I'm hearing a lot about you, but I haven't actually encountered or experienced you. And so maybe it's just, I don't know, fake. And shortly after that, I was in a horrific car accident, and hanging upside down in that Jeep was where the Spirit of the living God entered in and absolutely overwhelmed me. The weight of His glory was crushing as it was soul resuscitating. And I encountered in relationship, in, in manifestation, in actual experience, the God that for so much of my life I had heard so much about, but suddenly in my deepest pit, the rebellious woman, the adulterer, the scarlet letter, really in my absolute shame, I encountered the spirit of the living God who said, would you be still and know that I am God? I love you. The gospel came to life to me. The cross actually became applicable to me, not just something I could recite to someone else and hope they converted. No, the sacrifice of Christ became very personal to me because it was essential for me to know any hope or freedom and how could he love a woman like me. But I began to, uh, he began to stir up, to well up as I move forward in living out this actual faith and allowing him to minister to me. I began to move forward and one of the first things he began to sort of stir up and desire to address in me was my sexual brokenness, my identity. And I remember being so terrified of that because no one had ever talked to me about that. So my assumption was that sex and God were very separate. A compartmentalized conscience, this is really how we kind of operate, until the things like collide and there's repercussion for our sin and then we're angry at God. But I saw them as very separate and if he were to know or to see these parts of me, or if I were to like actively engage with the Holy Spirit in these things, it was purely the perverse fear of God, the grip, the weight of my disqualification, of my shame, of my impurity. But then I opened the text and in prayer and intercession began to encounter the living God. Matthew 9, 36 says, when he saw the crowds as a speaking of Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this is how 
Christ, I believe, sees even this generation harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. But it doesn't say that he turns up his nose and condemns them. It says that he saw the crowds and he had a welling up of compassion for them. Christ has compassion for you and he loves you. I began to open the text and I came across John 4. Again, this stuff was new to me, this story of this woman, this Samaritan woman at the well. And a lot of the times we start talking about this text and the men kind of disconnect because they're like, it's the woman's story of the redemption stuff and the sexual stuff. No, understand the prophetic vision here. If the husband, if man represents Christ, wife, woman represents the church, the ecclesia, the body. When there are stories, when women are through the text, oftentimes there is prophetic sight that can be gleaned of how Christ interacts with his bride, with the church, male and female alike. We come under and into, oh my goodness, sorry about that, this very identity. So this word, this story is just as applicable for you. But what happens in this story is that there is a woman who has, um, she's a Samaritan woman. Christ goes out of his way and the disciples go to town to receive food. He desires to go through Samaria, which was very taboo. It was very not done by the Jewish people. And he's there first waiting at the well. And this woman comes at high noon to draw water. And this is not when you draw water in the Middle East at high noon. This is when you go and you don't want to be seen or known or acknowledged because this is a social place. And so to go to it invisibly is ideal for someone who lives in shame and doesn't really want their identity to be seen, doesn't want to be known. And this woman goes to the well at high noon and Christ is there and he speaks to her. He dignifies her. Christ will always dignify you with and by his word. I grew up navigating a silent treatment from my dad. Um, athletically, this is so, I haven't even shared this in the other groups, but I feel by the spirit there's someone in here who needs to hear this. If I did things right, if I played well athletically, if I brought home the good grades, I was daddy's best girl. If I lost, if I played poorly, if I failed at something, I got the silent treatment for sometimes days on end from my own father. And it had shaped my perspective of how God must also desire to commune with me. And maybe for some of you that's similar, but we see a very different picture in the scripture. In the midst of this woman's hiding and shame, he dignifies her with his words. He says, will you give me a drink? And she's shocked. Who are you? A Jewish man associating with me? I'm a, a Samaritan woman. And he responds to her, you know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And I kind of love her response because it's very us. It's how our minds operate. She responds with some logistics, but she's like, sir, you, uh, you don't have anything to draw water with and this well is very deep. So how are you going to access this water? And this is sometimes our argument back, right? 
in the light of our sin or the things that have shaped our identity or are very hard for us and very tender to allow God to minister to and heal, we start to go through the logistics. No, 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 you don't know, uh, maybe God, what that would take. The relationship I've been, I've been with this guy, with this girl, we're engaged. What does it look like? Yes, we're in the throes of sexual sin, but the details of what would have to happen if you were to call me to something different. No, God, you don't know the extent of abuse that I endured or why I seek the things I do, or I have no concept of how I would cope or move forward without X, Y, or Z. We come back to him with all of the reasons why maybe his grace isn't sufficient for our story. Why maybe we are just meant to kind of cope and we probably won't ever know real freedom. We've been communing with the enemy far too long and the brothel of deception and lies. So she argues a little bit and he responds, you know, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This grace, this encounter, this living water of Christ holds the very power by his blood to satisfy our thirsty souls. And we're a thirsty generation, let's just be honest. He says, no, I have something greater for you. And at the offer of that, she likes it and wants it, right? Well, then give me that water, she responds. And he will, and he does. But first, he says, first, go and get your husband. She said, I don't don't have a husband. He says, I know. You've had five. And the man you're married to or living with now, you're not even married to. And in this moment, he offers living water. But as they sit by this well, he digs deeper into her very heart to address the things that need this very grace, need this very healing. You see, this woman had commuted to the well back and forth. You maybe have lived your life commuting back and forth, sure of your identity. Yes, I'm a child of the Most High King. And then the sin temptation draws us in and we stumble and struggle again. And we're back to the well to try to get something to bolster ourselves. And maybe we just, and then we're back in this sin and we we live this life of back and forth, back and forth. And he says, would you be still and know that I'm God? I have something for you that will halt this journey and can well up within you and never run dry. I want to set you free. but he addresses the things that are the most hidden in us. He brings into light what we've kept in the darkness, in our naivety, really, because we assume he can't see them. You know, he's literally always in the midst, right? He sees my text message threads. Yeah, he's in the loop. She can't believe that he tells her everything about her. You see, she'd lived this back and forth life with shame identifying her story. And I love that she doesn't run off or deny it or rationalize or find the cultural term that fits what she's going through and kind of hide behind that facade of an identity. No, instead she says, who are you that you would know everything about me? You must be a prophet. 
And he has an exchange with her that reminds her and reminds us the full truth. He says, no, there is, there is something coming. God is spirit. And what he desires is that the true worshipers would worship him in spirit and in truth. And so what I've come to do, what he's come to do is to awaken the very spirit within us, that we would no longer be living these lives like just these fleshly creatures that are so pulled by the whims and the ways of the world, but that our spirit would come to life, that we would know life in him and worship him with our bodies. The text says this is our true and proper worship. Wait, it's not Hillsong or Elevation? No, your true and proper worship is how you carry the very temple housing the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is what is coming. That my spirit wants to dwell within. And you'll worship me in both spirit and in truth. And she says, well, I know a Messiah is coming. And what's so beautiful about this text is the Samaritan woman, the person drowned in shame, identified by these things, is the very first person who explicitly in the gospel Christ reveals himself to as Messiah. This is whom he chose. She's the very first evangelist activated by the understanding of his identity. And it says she drops her bucket and she ran back to town with another man's name on her lips. But this time it was the name above all names and many came to believe. The town came, desired he come in, and many Gentiles were saved, the lost, the least, the Samaritans, the unlikely of sorts. And this is who our God is, and this is what he desires to do in your life. If you will allow him, if you will sit with him at the well, he may drum up some filth, but you'll find the faithfulness and the love and the great glory of God that in the face of our filth, he stays. And he offers us living water and he ministers to these places. And he writes a new banner over our stories that is redeemed. And that great love, the humility to acknowledge the need for it and receiving that kind of mercy and love is the very thing that ignites the flame of the Holy Spirit that we would take off running to. You see, we are in a hurting, broken world. I won't even separate the body of Christ, the church, from the reality of the world right now because it is all so blurry how the bride has been defiled. But we are in a prophetic time of the Spirit moving and purifying His bride. There is a wave right now coming over the body of Christ of purification and His desire for holiness to rise, genuine holiness, not just behavior modification holiness, but my heart has been impacted and touched by the glory of this God. And so all of these things become distasteful to me. He will deliver you of an addiction to pornography. He will heal trauma that has happened in your life. He will move in signs and wonders and miracles in your own heart. And the text says that we will know the kingdom of God has come upon us when demons are cast out, when holiness, genuine holiness rises in our lives. And there are impure things that he wants to cast out in the midst of this place to purify his bride, that the church would know genuine intimacy with the living God. But that begins by sitting at the well and allowing him to touch and reach and minister to these places. 
and fighting back against an enemy who wants to silence you by shame and instead saying, no, the power of life and death lies in the tongue, so with my tongue I will proclaim the goodness of God, the glory of God. I will speak his promises and his truth and his word over my life, my past, my present, and my story to come. And if this is the way we live under this true identity, we will be activated into a hurting and lost world. We will actually fulfill the great commission of multiplying of making disciples because we won't be living double-minded, half gripped by our shame, half on fire on the surface. No, we will become all consumed by the fire of God and the things that once bound us, adultery, porn addicted, you name it, become the very things that we step on by the power of Christ that he crushes the head of the enemy with. And that we stand firmly in that place and say, let me tell you about the one who redeems and makes all things new. This is the invitation for your life, and it's the glory he desires for you. So I want to encourage you all to step into this.